Hebrews 2.13-2.15. The ninth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on November 30, 2014 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2014. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. Handout number 4. Clarification of Hebrews 2, verse 13, accompanies this talk. Okay, we're going to make our way through the book of Hebrews. In my translation, we've arrived at paragraph 8, that's verse 13 of chapter 2 in your normal Bible. Just review, by way of review, the critical thing to understand in all of this, throughout this whole first section of the book of Hebrews, is what has prompted Paul to write this to begin with. Paul is writing this because the Jewish people who have become believers in the Messiah have been persecuted, they've been thrown in prison, they've been beaten, they've been ostracized, they've been marginalized in the Jewish society that they're a part of because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they're growing weary. And in their weariness, all of a sudden issues, intellectual issues, theological issues that had never really been resolved adequately are beginning to resurface in their minds and causing doubt for them. And the two big ones, or one big one with two parts to it, is how can Jesus be the Messiah since Jesus was just a human being who was mortal and got himself killed? He got crucified by the Romans. He was defeated by the Romans. How can that be God's Messiah? God's Messiah, all the prophecies declare the incredible, grand, majestic things the Messiah is going to do when he comes. He's going to establish the kingdom of God, and he's going to defeat all the enemies of God. Jesus got defeated by the enemies of God, and he got himself dead. So how can he be the Messiah? That makes no sense. That's that. The other thing that we need to keep in mind as the background is apparently there had been the idea that got resurrected by these people that the Messiah, when he comes, is going to be an angelos. And I have argued that it's some kind of theophany that he's talking about here. The Messiah, when he comes, is not going to be a, merely a human being. He's going to be some kind of, it's going to be God himself appearing in the form of a human being. But it's not going to be a human being. And since Jesus just was a human being and wasn't this angelos that they expected, surely he was not the Messiah. So Paul begins the book of Hebrews by saying, let's revisit the evidence in our Torah, in the scriptures. Let's go revisit the evidence. We go to the, he, he went primarily to the Psalms, and he said, what was it that God promised? He promised to the human being, David, that David and his seed would be the son of God and that his kingdom would last forever, would be an eternal kingdom. So it was to a human being that those promises came, not to any angelos that those promises came. So since God sent this human being, Jesus, to speak to us, we better listen, we better pay attention. Because if God spoke through angeloi, and you weren't supposed to ignore them, 
you bet you better not ignore the son when he speaks. And that was his first exhortation. And then he begins this section where he says, and what do we have right now, currently? Well, in Psalm 8, God promised that David would rule over all of the created order, all of nature. Well, with Jesus, the promised son who's going to fulfill the promise to David, with Jesus, we don't yet see all of nature subjected to Jesus. He's not ruling over all of nature right yet. But he did gain the right to do so by going to the cross and being suffering the death on the cross that he suffered. And then Paul argues, and don't you understand how fitting that is? How fitting it was for God to promise and purpose to bring about a kingdom where one of us would rule with the authority of God himself. One of us would be God. God would come in human form as one of us and somebody who we can relate to, connect with, love, honor, be grateful to, who has died for us in order that we can even be in the kingdom of God at all. Do you see how appropriate that is, he states. And then he ends with the psalm, Psalm 22, reflecting David's comment in anticipation of God delivering him. He says, I will sing God's praises to my brothers. And Paul applies that to Jesus. Similarly, Jesus came and suffered, that's true, but God delivered him through the resurrection. And what is it we could put David's words in Jesus' mouth? I will sing God's praises to my brothers, because Jesus is simply our older brother. And he ends with that psalm, and now he does something really weird, and now we're getting into new territory. This is in 2.13, or my paragraph 8. And as a response, I will put my trust in him, even further, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now, this is a really important lesson in how to read the New Testament and what the apostles do with the Old Testament. Back as a relatively young Bible teacher, I just assumed that you could read the New Testament and it would kind of be self-explanatory. You could understand it on its own terms. I didn't need to go back to the Old Testament to see what was being quoted. I could just follow the flow of argument that is right there in the page of the New Testament itself. It's not the way it works. As we will see here, this is an incredibly cryptic statement that Paul makes here. It is loaded with background information. Paul expects his readers to know from whence this comes, what prophet's being quoted, what's the context of that quote, what did it mean in the context in which it was cited, in which it came originally. Without that information, not only are we not going to know what he's talking about, we're going to get it all wrong. First time I read through here, and as a response, I will put my trust in him, I thought that was talking about Jesus. But as we're going to see, we'll go back to Isaiah 8 and look at it. The I is Isaiah. That's who is putting his trust in him. What has Isaiah got to do with it? We've been talking about David and David's sons, the Messiah. We've been talking about Jesus. And then all of a sudden, he's talking about Isaiah. What do we do with that? What's the significance of that? Well, I think in order to understand that, we need to go look at the passage in Isaiah 8 and see what is being said there. And once we understand what's being said there, 
then I think we'll get a better idea of what Paul is doing with it in Hebrews. The part he quotes is verse 17 and 18, the end of 17 and 18. I'm going to start with 11, and we're not going to exegete the whole section. I'll explain what's going on here, but we want to focus on verses 17 and 18. Starting in 11, For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. Let me give you background before I read this even. If you remember when David took us through Isaiah, we're at a point in the history of Judah where Israel, the northern kingdom, has made an alliance with Aram, which is modern-day Syria, has made an alliance with Aram. Those two kings have made an alliance because they're getting spooked by Assyria in the east. The kingdom of Assyria is growing in power. They are a ruthless nation. They're conquering the people around them and expanding. And they know it's just a matter of time before Assyria presses westward and causes trouble in Palestine. So knowing that that's a brewing storm, Aram and Israel make an allowance, uh, an allowance, an alliance, an allowance too. They make an alliance and they come to Judah, the southern kingdom, and they say, we want you to join our alliance. Ahaz, the king of Judah, doesn't want to do that. He's not wanting to do that. So Israel and Aram threaten Judah. And they say, if you don't join our alliance, then we're going to come and we're going to beat up on you. We're going to lay siege to the city, take you over, and we'll put our own king, make our own king the king of Judah, who will cooperate with us and will be a part of the alliance. And that's the whole Emmanuel passage in chapter 7 of Isaiah. Well, that's still the situation when we get to chapter 8. Isaiah has been counseled by God to... Oh, okay, let me back up. Ahaz... Rather than make, now that he's being threatened by Aram and Israel and Northern Kingdom, is thinking that maybe it would be a good idea for him to form an alliance with Assyria. I'll make an alliance with Assyria, and they will be my protector from Israel and Aram. Isaiah and other people in Israel are, but Isaiah in particular, with a message from God is telling Ahaz, no, you don't want to be doing that. Don't make an alliance with Assyria. What should you be doing instead? Well, do you remember that God made a promise that he would establish the son of David in the throne in an eternal kingdom? Maybe what you should do is trust Yahweh. Let Yahweh take care of you. Let him be your safety. Let him be your rock. Let him be your fortress. He will protect you. You don't need an alliance with Assyria. If you make an alliance with Assyria, you'll be sorry. So just simply trust Yahweh who made this promise to you. Now, the Ahaz is not about to listen to that. He's not a particularly godly king. And even though this is the prophet of God counseling him in that direction, he's not going to go there. Instead, Ahaz's counselors and the other people in the court are accusing Isaiah of conspiracy. You're conspiring with Israel and Aram to keep us from making this alliance so they can take us over, and you're a conspirator with them. You're on their side. You're a traitor. So that's the background here. 
For thus Yahweh spoke to me with mighty power, instructed me not to walk in the way of this people. So Isaiah is speaking about what God is counseling him, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them, then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Okay, so this is what Yahweh is saying to Isaiah. Then he says, bind up the testimony, seal the instruction among my disciples, and I will wait for Yahweh who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. That part, I will even look eagerly for him. That's what's being quoted in Hebrews. It comes out differently when you translate it from the Greek, but the Septuagint of I will look even look eagerly for you, the Greek translation of the Old Testament there is almost verbatim what Paul has in Hebrews in the passage we read. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders. Now you remember Isaiah, the way that God delivered his messages to Israel is he had Isaiah's wife have a child and they would name the child the message. Maharshalahazbez or Emmanuel, or Sheoshuv, some Hebrew phrase that basically is a bumper sticker caption of what God's message to Israel is. So their little flock of children walking around Jerusalem are all these billboard messages to Israel about what God has promised them or, or what God has predicted. So I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from Yahweh of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, the way Paul uses it in Hebrews suggests to me that Paul is taking, behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders, as to not be simply a statement of fact, but to be a statement of resolve, following on the heels of, I will even look eagerly for him, or literally, I will trust in him, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel. I don't think that's saying that's what we are. I think what he's saying is that's what we're committed to doing. That's what we are, that's what we believe in. That we are going to serve God in this way. We are going to be the signs that God has asked us to be because we're behind this. We do trust his message. We do trust that God will establish his kingdom. We do trust that God will put his king on the throne and keep his king safe on the throne. That's our belief. That's our confidence. That's our trust. So we are going to serve him and obey him in exactly the way he's asked us to serve him and obey him. I think that's how Paul is reading Isaiah here. Okay, so what does that have to do with the argument of Hebrews chapter 2? 
Paul has laid out who Jesus is and how Jesus plays into God's purposes. He's the one sent by God to fulfill all the promises that God made to David. He didn't come in the form that we expected him to come in. We expected him to be more spectacular, more successful, more victorious, more powerful. We expected him to not be quite so humble as he was. And even now, he has not yet fulfilled all the promises that God made with respect to David's son, Jesus, the Messiah. He hasn't fulfilled those promises yet. All he did is go to the cross and then get raised from the dead and ascend into heaven. But that's a big, huge deal, Paul argues, because that ascent into heaven was to the right hand of the majesty on high. He is now qualified to rule over all of creation on behalf of God. And in time, when God gets around to it, that's going to be an actual living, vital reign over all of creation. Not yet, but it's coming. When God gives him the go-ahead, that's what he's going to do, is establish that reign effectively over all of creation. It was fitting, however, that he be a mortal human being and die, endure the suffering of death, so that he can be a part of the fabric of suffering humanity. He can be taken from among our lives, and we just heard testimony of that this morning. That's the fabric of our existence is suffering, disappointment, tragedy, problems, obstacles, pain, grief. That's what makes up our lives. Is the Messiah immune from all of that? Paul is saying, no. Don't you see how fitting it is that he went through the same ordeal that we are asked to endure in our existence? He endured the same ordeal of suffering and came to the other end and was rewarded by, us, by being raised up to the right hand of God. We in time are going to be raised up as well. Well, we have to wait our turn. But Jesus has already gone there ahead of us. So he proclaims the praise of God for his reward, for his deliverance, for his blessing. He's praising God to his brothers, we who are his brothers. Now this quote from Isaiah. I think what Paul is saying is, how in a comparable, analogous kind of situation, how did Isaiah respond? Isaiah was faced with a situation where it looked like the throne of David was going to be thrown down and forever and completely lost. So much so that in his desperation, Ahaz was willing to make an alliance with Assyria in order to establish that throne. He was threatened. He was afraid. But Ahaz wanted the kingdom to be established on his terms, not on God's terms. He was completely ignoring the promise of God. He was not trusting God to fulfill God's promise to him. He was seeking his own devices to be able to secure the kingdom and bring God's promise to pass. Paul sees his readers in a comparable kind of situation. You're expecting the Messiah. You want the Messiah You want to believe in God's Messiah to come and bring deliverance, but you want your Messiah on your terms. You're like Ahaz. You're wanting it to happen the way you want it to happen. You want it to happen the way that you can control. You want 
a supernatural, majestic, powerful being to come and announce himself to be the Messiah. Instead, you got a guy who got crucified by the Romans. In that situation, Isaiah said, I will trust God, I and the children whom God has given me. We will trust God in this situation. We are going to allow God to send us the Messiah that God wants to send us, not the Messiah that we would prefer, not the Messiah we think he ought to have sent. Okay, questions? That makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And I think it's interesting that in the, in the same verse, even before what's quoted, it says, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Mm-hmm. You know, which is, and then earlier talking about the situation that Ahaz and the nation find themselves in where God's provision for them is not obvious, it's hidden from them. How God will bail them out requires faith, it requires trust. And that situation of finding yourself sitting in the discomfort of having to trust in a God who doesn't perform the way you want him to um, requires faith. And that 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 situation is, is the stumbling block that the Jews find themselves in over and over again. And, you know, that language, but to both houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over. I mean, it's the same language that then gets picked up and applied to Jesus as the cornerstone and a stone exactly. that... Yeah, exactly. That, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great point. Because we're, his readers, are in a comparable situation. It looks like, in, as they look at their lives... You've sent us the Messiah, and my life is miserable. Where's the victory? You seem to be hiding your face from us, these people who've placed their trust in Jesus. And it takes faith to recognize, no, he is qualified. It's only a matter of time, and God is going to bring it about in his own way. But you've got to trust that Jesus is who God said he was, that he will do what God said he will do, and he will fulfill the promises that God made to him. It's fascinating that where the the Jews find themselves now with a God who's been silent for the last 2000 years they I'm sure the the cry is you know why do you why do you remain silent why do you hide your face from us and yet he's said everything that needs to be said in Jesus Exactly so yeah. and in that sense it's it's kind of a reverse of that statement it's not God hiding his face it's the Jews and their expectation not wanting to look at what God has shown them. That's true, yeah. To add to what Colin had said is, based on the day in and day out expectations of life, it's to the average person, even though we've heard God's promises, it's like, in a way, seems like he's an absentee landlord. Mm -hmm. Even though his promises make it clear that He may seem to be absent, but he will fulfill the promises one day, much like a phrase, a thief in the night. That's right. I mean, we've got it easy, but there are Christians across the world who are being killed, who are being beheaded these days for their belief in Jesus. There's that scene in Revelation where the souls of those who have been beheaded are crying out from beneath the altar, and the book of Revelation is the answer to, their, to the injustice and the troubles that they have endured. God is going to hear them, and he is going to set things right, and he is going to seek vengeance against his enemies. 
But when you're in the middle of that, right? When you're in the middle of it, the only thing available to you is believing that what God has promised is actually going to transpire. It's actually true. He really did promise it. He really is there, and he really is committed to doing what he's promised. And that then becomes the sole basis for our hope at that point. Just as Ahaz sitting on the throne, the sole basis for his hope for protection was that God had promised. And most of us as human beings don't take God that seriously. Not so seriously that we can take a promise that he made and count on it and take hope from a promise that God has made. But that's what we're all called to. And I think that's exactly what this passage is doing. Is He's going back to Isaiah and saying, I want you to respond the same way Isaiah responded. When I remind you of the promise, trust me, count on it, act on it. One final comment is that we don't exactly choose our circumstances, but it's kind of hard to choose the medium of between is most believers are evil in the, in the midst of evil persecution, Christendom, or something of like of that, or kind of in our situation where we may have it easy, but the culture may be hostile. Absolutely. A different sort of challenge that we face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we live in a very hostile culture right now. So I'm not quite following okay. yet. I just want to say, start though, that I'm really in favor of going back the way you're talking about and trying to see in context. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not trying to resist that mm-hmm. here, but I'm not quite understanding how this is flowing. Part of it is you haven't talked about the next verse yet. So part of my question is, would you go on and talk about the next verse? Because Therefore, I, since the children. That right, one. because I noticed the word children is picked up again. Right. And right. so I'm wondering how that fits in that way. Okay. And then... Beforehand, the other question, and I'll just leave you to work with it, is it does seem like, like I say, I'm real in favor of going back in the context and seeing what's going on there, but it does seem as if 12 and 13 are somehow meant to work together to relate to the thing that he says in 11. He's not ashamed to call them brethren there, and then since children share in flesh and blood in 14. As far as I'm hearing you so far, I can't figure out how the way you're taking the stuff from Isaiah actually fits in what he's saying. I mean, it seems like a a sentiment that he could have put anywhere, but how's it fitting here, I guess is my question. Well, I think it's ending this section, or this part. It's true that he's going to go on to say, therefore, since the children share flesh and blood is an allusion back to what he just said, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I think it has to be an allusion back to that. But it's not because it's continuing the argument. It's picking up a new argument and picking the language up of children from where he ended the part before. So I don't see paragraph 7 and paragraph 9 being part of the same argument, and therefore I have to find a way for eight to somehow be continuing that argument. I think he's finished the argument about how both those who are sanctified and the one who sanctifies are all from one humanity. And then he quotes Psalm 22. I think he's done with that there. And that now, and I don't know whether to call this parenthetical or not, but then he ends that by saying, you, my readers, respond to that like Isaiah did. Now, as a response, Isaiah says this. And then he doesn't say, go and do likewise, but I think that's implicit in the putting it here is, now go and do likewise. 
allow him to be a fellow human being, allow him to be a brother, and trust God that that's what he's given you in the Messiah, rather than resist that. That's how I'm taking it. And then that just sort of caps off that part. Now he's going to go back to the fact that Jesus is a human being. He shares flesh and blood with the children in order to make a different point, and that is about what his death accomplished, which is something he hasn't been talking about yet. He, that, he introduces that for the first time. Now, the point Ron is making about paragraph 9, therefore, since the children share flesh and blood in common, the reason I say I think it has to be an illusion is because to just pull the word children out of the air, he's obviously talking about mankind. That's what he means by children. Why would you refer to mankind by saying the children? The only thing that makes sense is it's an allusion back to the quotation he just finished. Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Then that would explain why he uses that word, that phrase, to refer to mankind. And it does seem to be what Isaiah is doing. I will put my trust in him. Even further, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Now, in the context of Isaiah 8, I think the children in Isaiah 8 are just his flesh and blood children, his literal children, his biological offspring. But the way Paul uses it in 2.13 is to basically, okay, I think he could have made it his point, and as a response, I will put my trust in him, period, done. Go and do likewise. And that would have made the point. But he adds to it, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. And notice he doesn't finish the sentence that is actually in Isaiah. He cuts it off. Behold, I am the children whom God has given me. I think Paul is exploiting that statement for his purposes. He's not interpreting that statement for us. And here's what I mean by that. What he's doing is he's saying, Isaiah trusted God with his promise. Furthermore, he wasn't the only one. It was Isaiah and a circle of others who were the others in Isaiah 8, his children. They all resolved to trust God and obey him and to serve him in the way that God asked him to do that. So you have a circle, the the circle is expanded. It's not just this lone ranger Isaiah. There are all these other people, you know, his children, who also joined him in trusting God for his promises and chose to obey and serve him. Well, I think Paul then is using that for the children as being a way of describing anyone and everyone then who joins Isaiah in a response of trusting God for his promises and is willing to serve as signs and wonders to obey God and do what God has asked them to do to spread the message about God's promises. In that sense, you and I then could be children of Isaiah in that sense, if you follow what I'm saying. That seems to be the way he's using it there, and therefore he can take off from there in the next sentence. Therefore, since the children... Well, who are the children? Well, anyone who's joined Isaiah in trusting God for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Since the children share flesh and blood in common, he, Jesus, did himself similarly partake of flesh and blood as well. That's how I'm taking it. Talk me out of believing or thinking that he is saying Jesus is the child. Because if mere children of a mere man are signs and wonders from God, right, under Isaiah, I mean, they're not angels, they're just, but they're signs and wonders given by God, then 
If mere children can be a sign and a wonder given by God, why can't Jesus, who was also a man, be a sign and a wonder given by God? Well, he can be. In fact, that's what he is. That's why Emmanuel gets applied to him, because he's a child who's a sign of the promise of God. And is the point here, believe in Jesus, because he, like Isaiah's son, is a child, is no, I don't a think mere so. man, but a sign and a wonder from God. No, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. First of all, the message is not, the exhortation is not just simply believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. The message is believe in Jesus, even though he was an ordinary mortal human being who got himself dead. Nonetheless, believe in that Jesus. Okay. And that's my point. Okay. Even though he's an ordinary mortal, but so were Isaiah's kids. Got it. And yet, they were signs and wonders from God. So I'm not following. The point is, Jesus doesn't have to be an angel to be a sign and a wonder and a magnificent uh, statement by God about why you should trust him. He's a signpost. He's one who was predicted. He's um, He's a living, breathing statement of God keeping a promise in flesh. Yeah, all and that's, that's why he had to be flesh, not an angel. That's why he partook of flesh, is, is sort of what I'm getting here. But again, I'll let you talk me out of it. Well, I, I'm not sure I can because I'm not sure I'm following how you're looking at it, how you're thinking about it. Well, who are the children that share in flesh and blood? Can they be Isaiah's children? Yeah, I think they're Isaiah's okay. children. Okay, so if they share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise... Well, I'm sorry, are you talking about... In 2.14, the children yeah. who share flesh and blood, yeah. are you saying, are you asking me, are those Isaiah's children? Why can't that no, be I don't think so. I'm not taking it that way. Okay. I think any human being who, is, who comes to Jesus in faith and is part of the elect are the children who share in flesh and blood. So you're superimposing Jesus over Isaiah's role in that quote. You're saying Jesus is playing the role of Isaiah in an no, analogous way. No, no, no. Let me try again. I'm sorry. It's hard to be clear, and I'm doing a lousy job of it. In Isaiah's time, what was the issue? The issue is the Messiah, but it's in the form of the kingdom of God, right? The issue is the throne of David, the kingdom of God. From Solomon on, they've had this promise kind of attached to that throne. God has promised that that throne is going to endure forever. Well, here, Assyria is way more powerful than Judah. And it's only a matter of time. Assyria is going to come in and besiege Jerusalem, wipe them out. It's not what happened, but that's what they're imagining. Assyria is going to come in, lay siege to Jerusalem, wipe them out, do away with the king, the son of David, who's sitting in the throne now, put someone else in the throne, and David's kingdom is gone. It's gone from history. It's gone from the world. Well, what about God's promise? God promised that this kingdom would endure forever. So in the face of the challenge, in the face of the threat that is now being faced by Judah, what are they supposed to do with that? What are they supposed to think about that? Well, being normal, unbelieving, rebellious, depraved human beings, well, we take care of it ourselves. That's what we do. So Ahaz, who is the son of David, who's sitting in that throne at that time, says, I think I'll make an alliance with the Assyrians. They'll protect me. Assyrians or the Egyptians? Assyrians. He ends up, I guess, I can't remember, I think he ends up making it with the Egyptians, but he's considering making it with Tiglath-Pileser III in Assyria. Okay, so what is that? That's unbelief. God has made a promise. Ahaz doesn't believe God's promise. He doesn't believe that God is capable of accomplishing what he said he's going to accomplish in the face of this threat against the the kingdom. Isaiah is being called by Yahweh 
to trust him, Yahweh, trust me. Counsel Ahaz to not make any alliances, to just trust in me. And Isaiah responds by saying, okay, I trust you, God, and I'm going to name my children what you tell me to name my children, and they're going to march around Jerusalem, and every time they're in the playground and somebody says their name, God's message is going to go forth to Israel about what God is either threatening or promising them. So we're going to do that. We're committed to doing that because we trust you. We believe in your promise. Now fast forward. What do we have in the case of Jesus? We had this peasant from Nazareth claim to be the son of God, this son of David who's going to reign forever over the eternal kingdom of God. Well, that seems to not be working out all that well because the Romans get him, they crucify him, and put him in the grave. Now, granted, he was resurrected, but these people are beginning to doubt. And I would imagine one of the things they are doubting is, I know they told me he was raised from the dead, but I'm thinking that that's probably not true. Or they may, even if they did believe, okay, so he was raised from the dead, but what do I have to show for it? He hasn't exactly brought about world peace. He hasn't exactly brought about the victory over the enemies of God. I'm getting beat up. I'm getting thrown in prison. I'm getting my wages ripped off. Life is miserable for me by believing in this so-called king. So whatever. Okay, so he got raised from the dead. Whatever it is, he's not the one through whom God can keep his promises about a kingdom. It's not Jesus. He's just not up to snuff. And what would God counsel to Isaiah be there? I know it looks like Jesus is not an adequate fulfillment of God's promises, but trust me, I'm telling you he is the one, and my promises, all of them, are going to be fulfilled in this man, Jesus. So trust me. Isaiah would have trusted. The question is, are we going to follow suit? Are we going to do likewise? Are we going to adopt the same spirit of Isaiah and trust God's promises, even in the face of what looks like the circumstances being inadequate to be a fulfillment of God's promises. Does that help? Okay, what's your question? Okay, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. Now, who's the first he? He who sanctifies is Jesus. Okay, and then the believers are those who are sanctified. Right. Okay, and therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Jesus is not ashamed to call these guys brethren. Which is sort of, he's speaking of another group other than the people he's writing to, it sounds like. Well, it includes us. Yeah. It's all believers everywhere are the ones who are being sanctified. And, and then it has, uh, they've, he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. Now that's Isaiah speaking. That's David speaking. Or I'm sorry, that's David 22. speaking. Yeah. But it's David speaking as the Son of God. So because he's speaking as the Son of God, it could be anybody who is the Son of God speaking, and the ultimate one is Jesus. The ultimate Son of God is Jesus. And again, I will put my trust in him. And is he saying that that I will put my trust in him is the same as I will proclaim your name to my brethren? No. See, that was my point early on. Mm -hmm. Don't just read Hebrews. If you just read Hebrews, I... In one sentence, the I is David, so isn't the I David in the next sentence too? Or rather, most of us would say the first I is Jesus, so the second I is Jesus as well. But there's no way that that quote out of Isaiah 8 
is either David or Jesus speaking. It's Isaiah speaking. So we have to know the quote. We have to know the citation. We have to know it in context. We have to know what it means in context. And we need to know the significance of what it means in context before we can even have the first clue what Paul is doing with it, I think. If we just turn the eye into Jesus or David, then Paul's a fool and an idiot. You can't do that. You can't take a quote from anywhere in the universe and make it mean whatever you want it to mean. And what are you proving by that? I mean, what kind of nonsense would that be? So we have to expect him, if he's literally going to be quoting Isaiah, we have to expect him to be using what it means in Isaiah somehow. And that's what I'm proposing makes the most sense to me. So he seems to be piling on reasons why you should continue to trust Jesus, why he, he has all things to put in subjection to him. He was made a little lower than the angels, and he earned through his suffering. He was crowned with glory and honor. And you should be like Isaiah, who says, I will trust him. Right, right. And I think he's capping off this section by saying, and when you respond to what I've said, respond like Isaiah did despite what you consider evidence to the contrary, just right. like Isaiah had in his experience. Exactly. It's like, this thing, place is going to hell in a handbasket, but God has made a promise so I can relax. Exactly. And my children will be signposts because they too will believe. Right. Then he's going to make the argument yet again why you should trust him because he was the high priest. He, was, he earned it. He, he just keeps saying, trust him because of A. Trust him because of B. You should really trust him because of C. In fact, you should trust him like Isaiah did because of D. And, and you should trust him because I'll have to give you another reason to trust him. He just keeps hammering, it sounds like. Right. What he's going to go on to do now in the next part is to actually give us the meaning and purpose and significance of Jesus' death. I mean, so far, he's just said it's fitting that he come through the same kind of ordeal that we come through, that he be a human being partaking of of the substance of human suffering, that the Messiah be that kind of person. Now he's going to tell us he didn't suffer just to suffer. He didn't suffer just to be a suffering human being. He suffered to accomplish some specific purpose, and that's what he's going to take up in part four. Therefore, since the children, human beings, and in particularly human beings who join Isaiah in trusting God, therefore, since the children share flesh and blood in common, he did himself similarly partake of them as well, flesh and blood. And the flesh and blood seems to be not just his humanity here, but I think it's his mortality that's particularly in view. So read it that way. Therefore, since the children share mortality in common, he did himself similarly partake of mortality, with the result that through his death, he rendered powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the adversary, and freed, and I'm going to change the translation slightly from what you have, and freed from their slavery those who had been liable to the fear of death all their lives. That's why he died. That's why he was crucified by the Romans, so that he might free us from our slavery. And what slavery is he talking about? From our slavery to the condemnation to ultimate destruction. In order that he can free us from that, he died. So this was a highly significant death that he died. It wasn't just one more human being dying and undergoing some kind of tragedy. God purposed that his death would serve the purpose of rending powerless the one who had the power of death, the adversary, and free us from this incredible slavery that we were under. Okay, so let's talk about that. 
freed from their slavery those who had been liable to the fear of death all their lives. Now, it's tempting, of course, to think that, we, that the term fear of death just resonates with us. We know what the fear of death is. The fear of death is when I look into my future and I know I'm going to die one day and I experience fear at the prospect of that. Well, isn't that the fear of death? I don't think so. Not the way Paul's using it here. If I said a prize of $100, prize of $100, the $100 is the prize, right? That's a special kind of genitive. The genitive is the word that follows the of in English. In, here in the Greek, the fear of death I think Paul is using that like the prize of $100. The death is the fear. It's not what we fear, it is the fear. We have a fear, that's certain. But what is the fear? Death. What does he mean by death here then? He means the condemnation that hangs over every single one of us, over our heads, throughout our entire lives. I go through my life, and unless I am completely and totally clueless, I recognize that what I deserve is that my whole existence be wiped out, negated, nullified by death, by this, by eternal destruction. That's what he means by death here. So we have the sentence of eternal destruction hanging over our heads. That's the thing to be feared. That's what he means by the fear of eternal destruction, the fear of of death. Well, we've been liable that our whole liable to that our whole lives. He said. And by liable, I think what he means by that is that we, that's what we've been deserving of. That's what we're worthy of. That's what, we are, that's what our destiny, in fact, is because we have gained that for ourselves through our sinfulness and our depravity. We've earned that for ourselves. Well, it's a kind of slavery. I can't free myself from it. There's nothing I can do. It is so endemic to who I am that I deserve to be condemned that there's absolutely nothing I can do to change anything. It's a bondage. It's a slavery. If I am not freed by somebody who redeems me, then there is no option but what I go to my condemnation. I go to my death. Jesus' death was the ransom, the redemption that sets me free from that condemnation to death. But the way he puts it is he rendered powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the adversary. Okay, now those of us who have C.S. Lewis ringing through our ears or have read N.T. Wright or have heard any sermon by any fundamentalist anywhere or sung any hymn at any time, we know what that's all about. We're talking about the deeper magic here. This is the deeper magic, that on the cross, God performed this incredible act of magic where Jesus' death on the cross, I mean, it vibrated when Jesus died because the magic was flowing through the cross and Jesus' death and radiating like beams into the universe that changed everything and freed us from our condemnation to death. I don't think that's what he... And and particularly here, those beams skewered Satan and completely sapped Satan of all of his energy and all of his strength so that there's nothing he could do to us any longer and he couldn't make us die any longer. Something like that. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it. In what sense did the cross render God's adversary? And notice it's God's adversary, not our adversary. Satan is not our adversary primarily. He's primarily God's adversary. That's what Satan and Diabolos mean. The enemy, the adversary of God, I think. So as God's adversary, if God wants to save me, Satan would just as soon find a way to prevent him from saving me. If God wants to rescue me, Satan wants to block him from rescuing me. Why? 
No particular reason. It's just because it's against God. I think Satan is the ultimate vandal that destroys for the sake of destroying, that thwarts for the sake of thwarting, that ruins for the sake of ruining. He doesn't have any positive thing or constructive thing he wants to accomplish. He just wants to wreck what God wants to do. And what God wants to do is show mercy to people like you and me and give us life instead of condemnation. Well, Satan would love to prevent that and block that, block us from gaining life. How would he do that? I don't think he has any power. I don't think he has any authority to visit us with death. We know who has the power to cast into the grave, to cast into Gehenna. We know who has the power to do that. Jesus said so. It's God. God is the one who has the intrinsic and inherent authority to condemn who he will condemn and destroy who he will destroy. Satan does not have that power. So what does he mean, render powerless? The only kind of power, think of a courtroom scene. If I have a murder charge against me and the prosecuting attorney is loaded with all kinds of circumstantial evidence against me and things look bleak for me, one could certainly argue that the prosecutor has my life in his hands. He has the power to visit death on me through his prosecuting the crime of murder against me. If he does a compelling and forceful job of pressing the issue, of pressing the case, and gets a conviction, then I'm going to be executed, and he has the power to bring that to pass through pressing the case. I think the adversary of God would love to play the role of the prosecutor. Uh, God, Jack is a rebel. Jack is not a good person. Jack really doesn't deserve to live. He deserves to be destroyed. Now, Satan actually has a lot of power in that regard because he has truth on his side in that regard. Jack is a rebel. Jack is depraved. Jack does deserve to die. Jack doesn't deserve to be given life in the eternal kingdom of God. So because he's armed with that really, really powerful truth that he can press against me, he's got power in that sense. But on the other hand, if I have an advocate over here, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who's going to step forward and remind God as my judge that he has asked asked that I be granted mercy. All the truth in the world has no power whatsoever if God has decided to respond to the truth of my damnable nature with mercy. If God will grant me mercy, you can pile on all the evidence in the world that I deserve destruction, and every piece of evidence is trumped by mercy. I mean, that's the argument that Paul makes in Romans 5. God's mercy is so abundant, so profound, that you slap every sin I've ever committed on the pile as evidence against me, and mercy is still there in profusion to cancel it out and negate it. And so the only thing the adversary of God has going for him is the truth of how deserving of condemnation I have. That's the only power he's got. And because mercy triumphs over judgment, because mercy trumps judgment, he's rendered absolutely powerless by the gospel, by what the death of Jesus means about who Jesus is and the role that he's going to play in my regard, in my behalf. Okay, I think I covered that. Questions, comments? Now, just while you're thinking, notice that Paul doesn't say anything here about, he doesn't give us a theory 
about how Jesus' death accomplishes all this. He doesn't give us an explanation of how his death accomplishes all this. He's assuming that we'll either find it somewhere else in his teaching or get it in the background, but he doesn't spell it out right here. That doesn't stop us from reading all of our traditional view into this. So we think we know good and well how he renders powerless. Well, he paid the debt that we owe to divine justice, obviously. Well, notice that Paul doesn't say that. And that's my contention anywhere we have a statement like this. Paul never says that he paid the debt to divine justice. We're just always finding it every time he says something about how his death accomplishes what it accomplishes. There's no question that Jesus' death accomplishes what he says it accomplishes. It frees us from our, the condemnation to eternal destruction. No question that he's saying that. How does it do that? We need to figure that out from elsewhere. We're not going to get it from a statement like this. And I have a different theory, as most of you know. I have a different theory about the role that his death is playing in that regard. Can you spell out for me again how Jesus sharing in their humanity is connected to him breaking the power that the adversary has? Because it's through his death that he rendered him powerless. If Jesus was not a mortal human being, he couldn't have died the death that was going to render Satan powerless. Okay. So you're saying that it's his death that qualifies him to be our advocate, which is what renders Satan powerless. Yeah, that would be my explanation that I pieced. And, and we're going to get more of the atonement throughout the book of Hebrews. And I, I would argue that as we begin to fill in the picture of the various analogies and metaphors that get used throughout the book of Hebrews, that it fits my explanation better than the traditional explanation, is what I would argue. But yeah, exactly. How did he render it powerless? He qualified himself to be an advocate to whom God would listen. So if Jesus says, I want Jack in my kingdom, I'm going to be in his kingdom because God is not going to deny the son to whom God, as Jesus puts it in John 5, the father has life in himself, but God has given it to the Son to have life in himself. And what he means by life in himself, I think, is the inherent authority to grant life to someone. God has that authority inherently, but he's delegated that to the Son. And the Son, as we saw last week, the authority that he has is something that he ultimately earned. How did he earn that? God gave him a race to run, a journey to finish. And that journey went straight through his torture on the cross. That was the ordeal that was given Jesus to undergo. He did it. He did it obediently. He did it faithfully. And therefore, God highly exalted him. Therefore, God put him in the place where the one who has life in himself delegated that authority to Jesus. So Jesus is now the one who can, all he has to do is say, I want Jan in my kingdom, and Jan will be in his kingdom. I have another question about just going back to the part, the quote by Isaiah. Mm -hmm. It occurred to me that there's this problem that you point out first, that it feels most natural to keep reading the I as Jesus. And I thought it was really interesting what you were saying going back to Isaiah. And I wondered if reading it with that context, just with the I being Jesus, if that was the case, Paul could be saying, look at Jesus when he was faced with the prospect of his death annulling his chances of being the son of God, he trusted in God's promise that God had 
set him apart as the son and says, I will put my trust in him. So Jesus is saying, I'll put my trust in God and go, go forward with this. And then Jesus says, again, in that same vein, here I am and the children God has given me. The children then being metaphorically applied to believers, just like Paul would be doing it if Isaiah was the one um, speaking. But I just wondered what you thought about that. I have to think about that some more. Maybe there's a way to make that work. The problem is you could probably, if it's simply a matter of trusting God, though, as Jesus did, I'd want to find a way to, there's probably, there must be dozens or hundreds of different places in the Bible that talks about putting your trust in God. Why the Isaiah 8 passage? So I'd want to find a connection specifically with Isaiah 8 and Jesus, and maybe that would work, but I, I, let me think about that. Okay. I have to think about that some more. But I, yeah, I wouldn't rule it out right away. That maybe there's some way to make that work. It is really important what you're saying to go back to the context uh-huh. because otherwise this is super confusing. Like there's no way to really even sort it out. What is, who's the I, who's the him, who's, who are the children? So I, I think that that's really important what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. We have to read our New Testament so that Paul does not look like a charlatan, a fraud, a faker, an idiot. The way I used to, growing up in the church, I'd read something like this and say, well, clearly he means I will put my trust in him. Wow, what a weird way to use that verse. Isaiah is speaking and, and Jesus puts it in the mouth of Jesus and wow, that's really weird. But I guess he's doing it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so it's okay. And so I, I stopped thinking about it because we always can always just defend it that, well, he's doing it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I read a book once by a guy named Richard Longnecker on the apostles' use of the Old Testament. And he goes through all these ways and where they use all these tricks to interpret the Old Testament. He, he argues that it's like what the rabbis did, that the apostles are interpreting the Torah the same way the rabbis did. And of course, the way the rabbis did it involved all kinds of gymnastics and tricks and stuff like that, and that's what the apostles were doing. And then he gets to the last chapter and he says, okay, now that we've seen that the apostles are using all these bizarre tricks, can you and I do that? Well, no, of course not. I mean, that would be ridiculous because it doesn't make any sense. It's not rational. It's not legitimate. It's not valid. These are tricks. These are parlor tricks. They're not intelligent exegesis. We need to use intelligent exegesis, not like what the apostles did. They can do it, however, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's mistaken exegesis, but it's inspired mistaken exegesis. And I went, that's crazy stuff. Because I don't care how inspired it is. If it's fraudulent, it's fraudulent. If it's irrational, it's irrational. If it's invalid and illegitimate, it's an invalid and illegitimate. And if my faith is based on tricks done to the biblical text by the so-called foundation of this house that God is building, if the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is smoke and mirrors, then why on earth am I a believer? Why would I believe a faith that at its very foundation is done with uh, smoke and mirrors? If this doesn't hold up, then none of us should be here. This better be real. This better be valid. This better be true. This better be legitimate. And so when we look at something like Isaiah, I have to try to get inside the mind of Paul. I know you're not doing a parlor trick, Paul. So what are you thinking here? How does this connect with what you just argued? And if I don't see a way to understand that that is actually rational and valid, then I need to say, Paul, you're an idiot, and I'm going somewhere else. I know that seems risky, but I, for one, 
cannot have my faith rest on anything less solid than something that's truly biblical, in the case of Paul, truly based on a valid understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. If it's not based on that, then it's made up, it's manufactured, it's a fable, it's a fiction, and that's not the foundation of faith. Let's pray. I've got to let you go. Father, as you sent your son here into this world to suffer, Lord, you're asking us to suffer as well. Lord, remind us that you are the God who has not faced a problem that you can't confront by saying, let the problem be solved and it will be solved. Lord, you have that power. And the only reason you wouldn't solve our problems is because you have greater purposes and a grander design. Lord, help us know you in that way. Let us know that you are the author of our being and the author of all of history and that nothing can touch us, nothing can destroy us, but what it's a part of your design and your purpose. And let us take comfort in that and let us rest in that and let us be at peace in that. And Lord, we ask that you would help us as we struggle through to understand your gospel and to understand the teaching of your son and to understand this, the Bible, that you would help us reach clarity, that we might have true wisdom and might know with the clarity that goes to the depths of who we are, who we are, who you are, and how we fit into those purposes, that we might follow you, know you, love you, and thank you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name.